Our scripture reading this morning will be uh, Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2 and verses 13 and 14. The Bible's in your pew. That's uh, page 1045. And again, that's Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and verses 13 and 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. You encourage us by being here and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We want to encourage each other, not just guests, but our members, everybody. We want to encourage each other to keep our eyes upon the Lord and to walk every day toward Him. Uh, throughout the life of our congregation, God blesses us with many, many good and wonderful opportunities. We're thankful for the wonderful Elders Deacons Ministers Retreat we enjoyed this past weekend. We appreciate your prayers in that, and we hope and pray that much good was done. It sure seems like it was. But then also, even tonight, we have another really big, big event, and that is our big old youth group supper. And so we want to encourage all of our youth and then parents or grandparents that's involved in the lives of the youth, be sure to make your plans to be there tonight. There's a lot of things that uh, you ought to know about 2013, but then a lot of plans and expectations that you should learn about in 2014 so we all can be on the same page and serve together. And uh, Philip uh, is looking so forward to this, and I want to encourage you to look forward to this and be a part of this. Kingdom living. Kingdom living is different from living in the world. We have a different purpose in our life. We have different behavior in our life. We have different hope and expectations in our life. Listen, when we really understand kingdom living, our life is completely different. Over the past couple of months, different ones of you have sent me emails or just in conversations and said, hey, have you heard about that group that it's a group of atheists that at least they're forming a group and they're starting churches all around the world? And yeah, I have heard about them. And if you'll remember a few weeks ago when we had a lesson all day long on reconciliation, one of the points at the end of that lesson of application was when I said to you, what if you, and I, if you're a deacon and leading a ministry, or if you as a member are involved in a ministry, please think about this. What if you took what you do in your ministry, the way you conduct it, all that you do, and then you took your motive of why you do it? Could you take what you do and why you do it and go right down to Nashville and join up and do that same ministry and nothing would have to change. We need to give thought to that because there's something completely different 
about living with and for the king. Kingdom living is all about the king. This past week, though, because of other correspondence, I went ahead and went to SundayAssemblies.com and read a little bit about this atheist movement. And I went to one of their videos that was somewhat like uh, advertisement, if you will, explaining who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. And so it was real upbeat and real positive and energetic. And so this is one of the opening scenes from the video. And, and he introduces himself as Sanderson and they're from London. Uh, both of them are, are uh, comedians. And, and he introduces himself as Sanderson and she says, hi, I'm Pippa. And they say together, we started the Sunday assembly. It's all the best fits of church with no religion and awesome pop songs. It is a celebration of life and it's not a cult. And then they do some things mocking religious groups implying that they are a cult and then says, and that is exactly what we would say if we were not a cult. And then they go back to October of 2010 and they say that they jumped in a car and as comedians, they were driving to the bar. I guess they had a show there that night. And it says, it turned out that we found out we were two people who wanted to do this, do something like church for people who didn't believe in God, but we did believe in good. So in London in January of 2011, they started Sunday assemblies and several hundred people began gathering twice a month. It went viral and people from around the world wanted to know as atheists, how can we start a Sunday assembly in our community? Now it turns out they say that there are loads of people out there who want, now I'm, I'm not giving you this just for you to think about them. I'm giving you this for us to think about us. There's loads of people out there who want to live a better life. They want to help more people and they want to wonder more. And this idea of, of philosophy, I, I believe there's more out there for me to learn. And so that was their search. And so now it's spread through Melbourne, New York, Bristol, Brighton, and they believe will be 30 or more by the end of that year. Now, a little side note that I thought was interesting. At that point in the video, it goes to probably a minute long segment of describing how they need funds. I thought that was interesting because so many atheists all through the years have given Christians down the road for always collecting funds. They only need $825,000 to carry out what they have planned. And so they have a, a real detailed layout there of the funds that they need. But then it comes right back and says this, throughout recorded history, Humans have gathered together to celebrate values. This morning, is, is that why you're here? Are you here to celebrate values? Are you here because you want to do good for others? I'm talking your number one reason. Why are you here? I love the fellowship. What, what brings you here this morning? Humans have gathered together to celebrate values, to imagine what good or could happen. Notice this phrase. If we married the best parts of religion with modern science. 
I want you to think, not just right now, but this week, throughout your life. If someone asks you, what's the best part of your religion? That is one of the most important questions we could ponder today. And if before today your answer would be, oh, the best part of my religion is the fellowship we have with each other. We just love getting together. Let me tell you, the best part of our religion is we are all the time out doing good in the community. I just love helping others. Oh, it makes me feel so good. Brethren, those are dangerous, dangerous answers. Best part, best part of our religion, we come together on Sunday and we hear a message that just fires you up. And I know you're not really talking about here, me preaching, but I'm just saying, you say, it fires, and I leave, I leave every week and you're just, you're just like, wow, I'm ready now to face the week. Is that, is that really the best part? Because that's exactly what the atheist church is doing too. And if we have the tools to help others and to make ourselves as good as we can be, imagine if we combined inspiration, technology, and community to bring human potential to dizzying new heights in this one life we know we have. Let me share with you just quickly a couple of quotes and then we'll make some, I hope, important application. So they said they would go to 40 cities in 40 nights and they were going to go to 40 cities that expressed the most interest among atheists all around the world, 40 cities. And Nashville, Tennessee expressed the most interest, at least in the top 40. And so they came to Nashville, Tennessee back in November and Pippa and Sanderson and they began on a Thursday night, the first Sunday assembly here and it's the Sunday Assembly in Nashville. It's a godless congregation. They meet to hear great talks, sing songs, and generally celebrate the wonder of life. The Nashville scene, uh, just before it recorded, and I'm not going to read all of this, but down in the middle of it, it talked about the local artist here in Nashville, uh, Landry Butler, who organized this. And um, it says, which promises a lot of things people traditionally get from church services, music, fellowship, or raising of spirits and voices, just, you know, and of course, very disrespectfully says, without the dude in the sky. Right after the event, another individual who was a philosopher, Elaine D. Botton, said, like the Sunday Assembly founders, stand-up comics, Pippin Evans and Sanderson Jones, I don't think religion should have a monopoly on community. I like the idea of a secular temple where atheists can enjoy the benefits of an idolized traditional church, a sense of community, a thought-provoking sermon, a scheduled period of respite, easy access to community service opportunities, group singing, an ethos of self-improvement, free food without the stinging imposition of God Almighty. Why are you here? What is your faith about? When I heard this, it really caused me to pause and evaluate David Shannon. It really caused me to pause and say, what is preached and what is taught at the Mount Juliet congregation? Of our membership, how many of our membership could take all that they do and the reason why they do it 
and just nestle in pretty comfortable where, hey, what I want is a sermon and I want to be stirred and I just love fellowship and I love helping others and I just love to be a part of any group that does that. Or do you really believe and understand kingdom living? You can't have kingdom living without a king. And the word kingdom, oftentimes in a secular and worldly way, and sometimes even in scripture, depending on how it's used, it means realm. But when it's used about the kingdom of Christ, it's talking about reign, power, authority. There is one who rules and reigns, and we have to decide, do we want to be a part of the Lord's kingdom? Oh, it's an easy easy answer when we truly understand kingdom living and someone says, hey, what's the best part of your religion? The king. Without doubt, Jesus Christ. You take Christ out of it and you no longer have Christianity. You no longer have a kingdom. He is the core of everything that we are to be. Now you can have the whole left over and keep in mind, no one, no one counterfeits things that are not valuable. How many counterfeit pennies have you ever seen? You'll see counterfeit $20 bills and $50 bills and $100 bills. How many times have you seen people counterfeit organizations that are no good? But how many times have we seen, even in recent years, people want to counterfeit the holy institution of marriage? How many times now are we seeing people want to counterfeit the Lord's church? Why? Because there are things that are beautiful and attractive. Things like fellowship. Things like a generous spirit that says, I want to serve others. Things like the motivation that we get from studying God's word. And so individuals look at all of these outward things, if you will, that are beautiful and they are wonderful, but they are not the reason that we are part of the kingdom. Those things are not the core of who we are. The core of who we are, everything about it goes back to the king. We serve others because the king has taught us to serve others. We're generous to others because the king has been generous to us we love the messages because the message is not a philosophical self-help message. It is the holy word of God from the king. Anytime, anything that we are and anything that we do becomes separated from the king, we've stopped being the kingdom. Our motives are horribly flawed. And so I just want, and there's no system to what I'm about to share with you for just a moment. And then we're jumping into Colossians. And by the way, a little bit lengthy introduction, but that's because it's introducing this morning and tonight. So come back tonight and you'll hear the rest of this. But this is what, these are the things that just randomly went through my mind when I felt heavily convicted about who is David Shannon. I'm not talking about just as your preacher. I'm talking about hopefully as a son of God. And hopefully as a man that can say, Jesus Christ is my king. But is he really? Is that just verbiage that I throw out? Or is he really the king in everything I do? And so I ask myself questions like this. Why do you do good toward others? 
So all the times you hear people say, it always makes me feel good. That's not a righteous reason to do good for others. If it makes you feel good, that's great. But that's not a righteous reason to do good. The reason we ought to do good is because of who our king is, whether it feels good or not. Do you believe in God or good? Hear people talk about karma? Even the law of sowing and reaping. Do you serve the law of sowing and reaping or do you serve the king who implemented the law of sowing and reaping? Do you have faith? If so, in what or whom do you have faith? Would you rather hear a secular self-help sermon or a message from God's word? If you're going to speak about the best parts of religion, would a relationship with God or the gift of Christ be top of your list? We oftentimes sing, and this is the chorus in the second verse, Lord reign, that's kingdom. That's what kingdom means is reign. Lord, reign in me. Reign in your power. That's giving the Lord praise for I believe in your kingdom. I believe in your power. Lord, reign in me. Reign in your kingdom. Reign in your power over all my dreams, whatever I want. Lord, I don't want to dream anything that's outside of your reign and your authority. In other words, when we sing this, we're saying, if my dreams are going beyond you, stop my dreams. In my darkest hour, where are we going to be? In those dark hours, the valley of the shadow of death, is he going to be? You are the Lord of all I am, so won't you reign? Won't you be my king in me again? Over every thought, over every word, may my life reflect the beauty of my Lord because you mean second. See, Lord, first what means the most to me is fellowship. I don't know what I would do without these people here. They mean more to me than anything. Lord, it's just I have devoted my life serving others. That's what means the most to me is serving others. Lord, you mean more to me than any earthly thing. So won't you reign in me again? I invite you into a several week study of the book of Colossians. A book that exalts the King of Kings over and over and over. You just can't read many verses, and especially in the first half of the book, without reading about Jesus Christ. Sometimes it just seems like he's mentioned in every verse. You see Paul writing to to the people at Colossae, writing to saints, as he says there in the first and second verse, writing to faithful brethren. He felt at home writing about what drew them together, and it was and is the King of Kings. And I want to take your minds immediately to the first chapter in verse 13, and I hope that your mind says, hey, didn't we mention this verse last week? This was a sub-point out of 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter last week, but this week I want to capitalize on this and see what is being taught here and then spend the rest of today looking at this king of the kingdom. Notice again in verse 13, he was delivered, or he has, talking about God has delivered us, I want you to notice that, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom that's in Christ we have redemption through his Jesus blood 
the forgiveness of sin. Now, hopefully, if you've forgotten this, this will jog your memory. I want you to think about our life right here in the world. And we look over and we see that there are things that are so attractive about kingdom living. We easily can see the fellowship that people have. I would love to have fellowship, brothers and sisters that love me the way people in the kingdom have. I would love to have a heart that wants to serve others like people in the kingdom have. And so there are things that we see outwardly that draw us, but ultimately what ought to draw us is the love for Jesus Christ. But the problem is we can't move from the world to the kingdom of the Son on our own. Notice, He has to deliver us. And that's a strong Greek word. It's by force. He has to force us out of this world. Now, it's not against our world against our will. It's just saying that Satan's grasp is so powerful, none of us can do it on our own. And so remember, I gave you the illustration last week. It's like a prisoner of war. And, and, and in this particular situation, there's no way we can escape on our own. But then someone comes in and through their power, they help us escape. That's the kind of language that's being used here where it says, okay, God says, I've sent Jesus. Think about that. Literally, I sent him to the world so that he could come into this prison of the world and he can deliver you. And then that word convey is to translate out of, it's to remove out of, to force out of. And, and so he's saying, if it's your will, if you want that, he will force you out of the world. Not against your will, but if it's your will, he can take you out. In other words, he can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And he can place you into the kingdom of the son. What's kingdom? Reign, power, authority. In other words, the only people that are invited into the kingdom are those that are saying, Lord, I want you to reign in me. I want you to have total rule over my life. Now, when we do that, we're not worthy. We can't come into this kingdom guilty of sin. We have to be forgiven of sin. And that's why verse 14 talks about through him we have redemption. Where God says, the blood of my son has taken away your sins, removed them as far as the east is from the west. When I look at you, I see the righteousness of my son because of his blood. Did you notice also, he closes that verse by saying, and his forgiveness. That's beautiful. How can you and I forgive others? It's not because we've heard a self-help lesson. The way we forgive others is because we realize that the only way that we had the opportunity to be part of the kingdom is because God has forgiven us and we forgive others as Jesus taught time and time again. We forgive others because he has forgiven us. Everything that we are and everything that we do in the kingdom is because of what he has done for us to allow us to be a part of the kingdom. And so I'd like for you to spend just this last few minutes of this lesson looking at just verse 15. And it is beautiful and it's powerful. In other words, what I want us to do for the rest of the day is I want us to ask this simple question. Who is this king? This one that can do so much and should mean so much to us. Who is he? Is he really worthy of this kind of attention and of this kind of praise and of this kind of authority or reign? And so throughout the book of Colossians, 
There are many, many passages in here, but let's just go to the very next verse. Look at verse 15. Still speaking to Jesus, the one that has brought us redemption and forgiveness of sins. And through him, we've been delivered and conveyed out of the darkness of the world and into the kingdom of the Son. Verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. You see what Paul is doing here? He says, I want to reinforce you because the people of Colossae were getting off track and we'll go back and literally give a better introduction to the lesson of Colossians or the book of Colossians tonight. So I hope you're here so that you can appreciate the background. But one of the things that they were doing was they were starting to worship angels. They were trying to worship God through angels. And so one of the things that Paul is doing is he's saying, wait a minute. If you're doing things like that, you must not understand who Christ is. Let me tell you who Christ is. And so right here he says, I want to tell you about his image. I want to tell you about him being the firstborn. Well, what about his image? He is the image of the invisible God. Isn't this interesting? When Adam was created and that was recorded in Genesis, the first chapter, you remember the word image there? Adam was also created in the image of God. But you see, the difference is for Adam, Adam ended up sinning and he wasn't perfect. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he was God and flesh, human, at the same time. And so all of the attributes and the characteristics of God, the Father, the invisible God that we have not seen, what Paul is saying here is when you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. You've seen those invisible characteristics. But also you saw him made after the image of God in the same way that Adam was because he became flesh. He was born upon this earth as a baby and he grew up and became a man. And so we see the image of God and the image of man in one, Jesus Christ. We literally see what we should become in Jesus. And I'm not saying you and I should become gods. I'm saying the standard. We look at Jesus and say, if a man or a woman was going to walk on this earth and do it exactly correct, that's what they would look like. And so our standard does not become this feeling of you know, I, I just love the way they look like they're happy together. I want that kind of fellowship. That's not our standard. Our standard is not, I just love that feeling I get when I serve others, so I'm going to make sure that every day I do something to get that feeling. Or I believe that you need to constantly be learning something, and so I'm going to read some self-help books and rely upon this human philosophy so that I can have that feeling of I'm growing. No. It's Jesus, the image of God, where we can say, he is my standard. He's the measuring stick. He is my pattern. He is my king. However, he would want me to think and talk and act and conduct myself. Whatever he wants me to become, I want his will to be done in my life. 
If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to drop back to John, the first chapter. And you remember, this is another passage that talks about Jesus coming to this earth and taking upon flesh. And if you're not familiar off the top of your mind with John 1, 1 through 14, I want to challenge you to jot that down right now. John 1, 1 through 14. And as for a few weeks now, we're going to be studying about Jesus. This is a passage that Christians just should know what they're about. I'm not saying you ought to be able to quote it, but brethren, we cannot know the king if we do not know the teachings in John 1 and at least 1 through 14. And so in this time, we don't have time to go over all this, but it's the word becoming flesh. In other words, he's God's truth revealed to us. That's who Jesus is. We also learn in the first few verses, he is the creator. We're going to see that tonight out of Colossians also. But I'd like for you to notice what he says in verse 14. And I want you, I want you to think about what we see. Paul just said in Colossians 1 that when we see Jesus, we see the image of the invisible God. Well, notice what John, the, the apostle here, this is what he said he saw. Look in verse 14. And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, that's incarnation, and dwelt among us. And we, John says, beheld, that's looking, we're watching, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wait a minute, John, you saw God come to this earth and become flesh. Yes, what was that like? We beheld, we couldn't take our eyes off. We gazed intently. We saw the glory and what kind of glory was it? It was the glory just like the only begotten. In other words, it would have to be the glory of God. He didn't say, you know, he was glorious like one of the best men I've ever met. You know, I, I've, I met one of my grandparents that, that they were just one of the, that's what Jesus reminded me of. Oh, I, we met, he was a great prophet. Let me tell you, this man could stir crap. No. When John said, let me tell you what we saw in Jesus. We saw the glory of God in Jesus. Don't, don't stop there. Full of grace. Man had never seen the full measure of grace that God can offer to man until man saw Jesus Christ. Man never saw the full measure of truth and clarity and lived out, incarnated, until we saw God become flesh, Jesus Christ incarnated, and we saw the invisible attributes and characteristics of God. For example, here, we saw his glory, we saw his grace, we saw his truth. Now, I'd like for you to notice back there again, if you have your Bible in Colossians 1 and verse 15, what we just read, not only the image of the invisible, but also the firstborn of all creation. Do not be misled here. Does not say that Christ was created here. He's talking about here, and, and by the way, we can see this if you read John 1, and we can see it even as we study further tonight from Colossians 1, but let me just state it this way. Firstborn, oftentimes we think about a chronological order, and most of the time in scriptures, that's not what firstborn is talking about, and especially if it's talking about Jesus. Firstborn, oftentimes in the Greek, uh, it means uh, preeminence or supreme. Just like right now, if you said someone was given first place, what you're implying there is that they were supreme at whatever the competition was. They were in first place. And so here, what Paul is saying, and he's going to go on in the next few verses and say that Jesus Christ was the creator. 
So what he's doing is he's setting up those verses to say, you take all of creation, whether it's on heaven or earth, no matter how powerful that form of creation may be, and Jesus Christ is the firstborn. In other words, he is supreme over all creation. When you know Jesus, you know God. I'd like to close this lesson by taking you over to John, the 14th chapter. I wish I had about five or 10 minutes to do this. Let me just mention this to you quickly. At the end of the 13th chapter, Peter is so excited. He wants to follow Jesus. And when Jesus says, I'm going to have to go, he says, no, I, I want to go with you right now. Don't leave me. And Jesus says, listen, you can't go right now. I'll come back for you. And he says, Lord, I'd lay down my life for you. Let me go with you right now. And Peter hears those words that must have pierced his heart. He says, no, you wouldn't lay down your life for me. As a matter of fact, before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny that you have even known me three times. You can imagine how his countenance must have fallen. So that's how we get to the beginning of John, the 14th chapter. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he told him, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and receive myself. And Thomas speaks up. You sometimes know him as doubting Thomas. Here, he just asks that question. And he says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Keep in mind, they're probably still thinking that the kingdom is earthly. Okay, so you're going to go somewhere and you're going to establish this kingdom. And by the way, we want to be a part of that kingdom. But how are we going to make it to that kingdom when we don't even know where the kingdom is? And so he gives that great answer to show us. He didn't say, Thomas, you need to go north about 50 miles. And you're going to come to this road and you take a right and you travel about 100 miles. And that's where my kingdom is. The kingdom is spiritual. And so he says, let me tell you about the kingdom. I'm the way. You want to get to the kingdom? You find me. I'm the truth. You listen to what I teach and you can be a part of the kingdom. He's the king. He reigns. I am the life. You want to have kingdom living? You're going to find it through me. You want kingdom living anywhere else? You won't find kingdom living anywhere else. Now at this point, you would guess that Jesus surely must have been thinking, unless he's literally reading their minds and hearts, which he could have done. But you know, you would think he would be thinking, wow, th this is good. They're getting this. And then Philip asks that very disappointing question. Philip said to him in verse eight, Lord, show us the father and it suffices us. Oh, I can imagine how Jesus must have just grit his teeth, how he must have closed his eyes, how he must have shaken his head. Here he is about to die. He's been with these men for about three years. And you can imagine him saying, what? You don't think you know the Father? Don't you realize that God has been among you for three years? You've been talking to God. You've been watching how God works among men. You are about to watch God die on the cross. And so he answers it this way. Jesus said in verse nine, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you. Now notice this is kingdom talk here. This is authority. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the words themselves. In other words, the point was loud and clear. I am the firstborn of all creation. 
You want to know the Father? Get to know me. We're one. And so today, instead of a what did you learn today, I want to ask you to pause at the end of this lesson and I want to ask you to answer these same questions. Why do you do good toward others? Do you believe in God or good? Do you have faith? If so, in what or whom? Would you rather hear a secular self-help sermon or a message from God's word? If you're going to speak about the best parts of religion, would a relationship with God and the gift of Christ be on the top of your list? If your life isn't about the king, you're missing. The only place to start and to finish. And this morning, if you're ready to be baptized into the king for the remission of your sins, the one that can move you from the world, that can redeem you, the one who can forgive you, we'd love to assist you with that if you're a believer ready to repent of sins and confess before men. Perhaps you've begun that journey and along the way you haven't allowed the king to reign in all of your thoughts and in all of your words and in all of your life and you're ready to come back this morning and submit yourself to him and you want to pray forgiveness. If we can help